Well, take your Bibles, turn over to the book of Romans, Romans chapter 11. I was thinking, uh, just sitting up here, how, how simple life is when you're at church. You know, I mean, it's just simple. I mean, and then also, <clears throat> it's simple in the sense that, you know, you, don't, you, you really don't have a lot of ways to get in trouble here. You get out in the world and, <clears throat> boy, there's just so many things that seem to want to catch your eye and trip you up. In the church house, it's pretty simple. You're talking about God. You're talking about eternity. You're looking at things that are really, really important and matter to God. And it consumes you while you're here. You're really into it, I think, as a whole. Most are. Now, not everyone may be, but I believe in this crowd you are. And uh, you think to yourself, man, if I could only just stay here forever. And then the Lord can come back, and I know I'd be all right. <clears throat> you step outside of this, the walls of this place, and then you have to live life. You have to deal with issues and face temptation, like really more so than you will here. Although there's temptation everywhere you go, we understand that. But the fact is, is that <clears throat> there's no place. Dorothy, you say, there's no place like home. And if I could get on my toes, I'd click my heels. <clears throat> But there's no place like God's house. Amen. And you know what? When the believer finally arrives at that reality, life will be good. Amen. It's when we're still fighting that and we're debating that in our hearts and minds. Um, I'm reading, uh, I've started reading a book, and I'm not going to get into the details, but as I started reading, there was a lot of statistics, and it's really sad to note the disinterest in the house of God today. And uh, just how it's affecting our, our young people. It's affecting our adults. It's just affecting our churches in America. 
And the correlation that the author makes is between Europe and America. And he says and claims he believes in the next generation we will be right where they are. Empty church buildings and edifice, uh, uh, you know, edifices that are just, uh, is that what the word is? But anyway, that are just empty, ghost towns. <clears throat> I thought to myself the other day, in the next decade or two, you know, what will this building be? Will it still be a church? You know, I, I, I know you say, well, that's crazy. Is it? I mean, that depends. That's, between, that's our business there. Are we going to be faithful? Are we going to be consistent? Are we going to continue in the work of God? Or are we going to succumb to the temptations of the world and <clears throat> find something that's a little bit more appealing and important to us? And um, I'm excited about our family conference because I believe that everything rises and falls on the family. And you say, well, it rises and falls on God. I know, but if God's not in the home, then the church is, it's over. <clears throat> you know, the idea that the church is responsible for the spiritual well-being of the, of the nation, that is not true. It's the home. The church only reinforces what the home ought to be teaching from the Word of God. When you look at Israel, and you go back in their history, and you look at Deuteronomy, whose job was it to really teach the law? It was the parents' job. They're the ones that every morning and every, every day, uh, the, every night, they're supposed to be <clears throat> putting the scriptures on the walls. They're to be touting the truth. They're to be sharing the, minute, the, the word of God consistently, continually to their children. And the priests come along and say, all right, it's time to worship. Let's gather together and do so. And let's read scripture again. But what I'm reading is nothing you haven't heard before. It's everything you've already been exposed to through your home. But when the home ceases to teach and to train as God intended to raise their children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, the church has an impossible job. And we, as a church, communally speaking, can never overcome the failure of the home. We can never do that. And sadly enough, many are trying to equate the failure of Christianity to the church. But the failure of Christianity is rooted in the home. If we need to get strong homes again, strong homes will make strong churches. And strong churches will, of course, enable our nation to reflect its strength in God that way, through attendance and through giving and through just even missions outreach, because America, when it was strong in the home, was also strong in missions, because the church was strong. <clears throat> I just want to encourage you to stay faithful in God's house and to understand that it's not just enough to stay faithful in God's house. One must love God's house the way Jesus loved God's house, the way God loves it. <clears throat> the church is the body of Christ. When you love God's house, you love a body, you love a person. When people say they don't love the church, they're saying they don't love Christ. They don't love his body. Well, there's a problem with that. That's like saying, I love my wife, I just don't want to touch her and I don't want to be with her. Well, is that really love? <clears throat> I think most wives would say that isn't love. But in the church, that's the mentality today. 
Well, I'm all about loving God. I just don't love his body. <clears throat> be very careful when you start to train your children. Be in, careful that your actions measure up to your, your, your profession. That when you say, I love something, that you prove it through your actions. Otherwise, you are hypocritical in their eyes. And they will not love what you say you love. They will despise what you say you love. And that is the state of the church in America. And it's not from something I got from the book. It's something that I got from the book that the author, I believe, is going the wrong direction with. Because they somehow want to blame the church. But it's not the church, it's the home. <clears throat> you say, that's from you as a pastor. Of course you would say that. Because you don't want to take responsibility for your failure. Well, I would admit that the church can do better. Without a doubt we can. But can I say this? The church can do no better than you can. Because you are the church. The church isn't a pastor. The church is a people, a body. And so as strong as the body is, I mean, go ahead and tell a 98-pound weakling to lift 300 pounds over his head. What's going to happen? He's going to fail. He won't even get it off the ground. If the church is built with weak believers, then there is no faith to draw from. And we can't lift anything. We can't accomplish anything it doesn't matter how strong a pastor would be or how strong a staff may be if the people are not also equally committed and strong, not committed to working in the ministry, but committed to the Christ of the ministry. We're too bent on activity today. It's not that the activity is wrong. It's that we haven't prefaced it with a relationship. Martha's are plentiful in the church of America. But it is Mary's that we need. Because it's easy to find Martha's to some degree, unless it's the nursery. <laughs> Otherwise, it's not hard. By the way, we're having a nursery meeting on the 7th. Okay? I, I need all the ladies that are involved in the nursery. They'll be meeting with me and Mrs. Cavanaugh in the, about the nursery. But nonetheless, I just thought I'd throw that out since I mentioned it. But we need to be very cautious and careful today. We, we are at a crossroads in the ministry. Not just our church, but across America. We are in desperate need of believers who understand how precious the body of Christ is and how important the church is. And sadly enough, I believe that we have many churchgoers, and I'm not pointing to our church, I'm just saying in general across America, many churchgoers who believe that going to church is the answer to the problem. Now, going to church is a result of something much bigger and better, and that is a recognition of our Savior and an, uh, uh, an appreciation for what He's done for us, and the understanding that He works in and through the body of Christ, not only to... to exhort and to encourage us, but to ultimately perform and perfect his work in the world. And so nonetheless, I want you to think about some of those things as we continue in our study dealing with the Jew. 
And so turn to Romans 11.1. 1. You're already in chapter 11. Let's look at verse 1. You thought I was going to preach or teach on that. I'm not. We're just getting ready for our family conference, and I am excited about it. Um, I don't know what's going to be said. I don't, haven't talked to uh, the preacher about specifics. I don't tell preachers what to preach on when they come here. Um, I know Brother Martin is excited to be here, and he's going to do a fabulous job. I did not dictate to the lady sessions what to teach. I just told the ladies, teach whatever the Lord wants you to teach, because I have no clue what you ladies need, at least not what you talk about in those things. I'll leave that to ladies. I know that whatever Mrs. Martin is led to teach, it'll be exactly what we need. And by the way, Mrs. Cavanaugh is coming, and she's going to be sharing with us. You say, why Mrs. Cavanaugh? I don't know, maybe 11 children. Maybe the fact that she took care of her husband through five or six years of death. Maybe that she has numerous children in the ministry. God's doing something, has done something in her life, and she is a servant. I tell you what, we need more servants. And so I thought, boy, I, I said, Brother Kevin, you think your mom will come? I'd love her just to share something's on her heart. I don't care what it is. He said, well, you sure you don't want to give her direction? I said, no, that's the last thing I need to do. She's not a preacher's wife. She doesn't speak in conferences, but she just has all kind of life experience, and she loves Jesus Christ. We need to hear from her because the older women are to teach the younger, and she's not as old as some of us. That was a lie. But anyway, she's a little older than some of us, but she's not old yet. You don't tell people they're old anymore. They take offense to it, unless your brother Fred, who's a Marine, and he can handle it. He's been saying he's old since he was 48 years old. How many of you remember Brother Fred going around, I'm an old man, I'm an old man. He was 48. It's like, okay. But anyway, you know what I'm talking about if you know Brother Fred, okay. <clears throat> he just preached for us about a month ago or so, six weeks ago. All right, Romans chapter 11, verse 1. I'm excited, though, I say, about this conference, and I'm just looking forward to it, and I trust and help, pray that it'll be a blessing and a help to our homes. <clears throat> That's certainly something we need. I say then, hath God cast away his people? God forbid. For I also am an Israelite. You say, why'd you read that part? Because we need to understand the context. Paul the Apostle is talking about Israel now. He's talking about the Jew. And the point is, can, I say then, hath God cast away his people? Who? His people, the Jew. His people, Israel. He says, God forbid. God's not done with them yet. And so we've been taking some time to look at Israel. We've been considering their past, their, uh, their past over the last week or so. We talked a little bit about them in general already. And so I want to get into things because of time, but we'll note that we discussed the aspect of the call of Abraham last time. And we realized and recognized that he was called at the age of 60, but it appears that he did not actually leave and go toward seeking out the promised land completely, or Canaan, if you will, until he was 75. His father had already passed away before he ultimately took off and obeyed God the way God intended. Now again, we're not pointing fingers at him, we're not trying to criticize him, we're not trying to somehow judge him. I'm sick of the judge thing. But anyway, you, th you hear that? Everything's you judging me, I, whatever, whatever. If, it, if it's the truth, own it. 
quit being so offended by it. You know, I see you walk out of a bar, and I say to you, aren't you a Sunday school teacher? Are you judging me? No, I just saw you walk out of a bar. Could you at least say, yeah, I walked out of a bar. I was in there looking for my dad, who is a drunkard, and I was going to help him get home. Now, if you tell me that and you don't have a dad that's a drunkard, then we got a problem. But maybe you were there for good reason, but probably not. But nonetheless, own it. That's part of a family conference, I think, but we won't talk about that one, at least drinking. We, we're not going to do that at uh, the family conference. Okay, so Genesis chapter 12, we noted his call. Now, we talked about the past there, and we said, the Lord hath said. Well, you told him that, and so we recognized that. We made some application there, and boy, I tell you what, I thought there was some good application. Number two, we talked about the exodus and how they spent 430 years in Egyptian bondage. And the Bible tells us that they sojourned. They, now the sojourning of the children of Israel who dwelt in Egypt was 430 years. We made an application there as well. And we talked about, you know, the child of God that puts God's calling on hold. Man, they always end up having strings attached and it creates and causes bondage in their life. And boy, just uh, what another great, I believe, a, a wonderful application to the believer. And then we talked about the times of the judges. We said that there was another 450 years there. And uh, we, we considered a passage in the book of Nehemiah. And we realized that there was a cycle that we found that the children of Israel continued to repeat over and over and over again. One, there was blessing. Then there was rebellion. Then there was punishment. Then there was repentance. And then there was a decline again. So they started with God's blessings and they were so fruitful and abounding. They lost sight of God and they rebelled against him. Then they were punished. They repented. They went back to God, but then they got comfortable again. And guess what? Right back into sin. And so God would send the enemy and then he would send a what? Savior, the Bible says. Over and over and over. And we see the, the judges are those saviors that he sent. And so we made an application there. And we said that when the child of God rebels against God and discards his word, trouble's around the corner. You got problems. So we come now to the kings. And I want you to turn to 1 Samuel chapter 8. We're going to talk a little bit now about the kings because we're looking at the past and we're looking at the Jew and we're looking at represented in Israel now especially and we're going to see that in their past now we see some kings. We're going to note that the people weren't satisfied with being ruled by an invisible God. Instead, they wanted a king like the other nations and so therefore they demanded a king. 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse 4. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, bless us now in these next few minutes. Be glorified in it. Lord, may uh, the truth and the application, Father, be practical and helpful. We'll thank you in Christ's name. Amen. So look at 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse 4. It says, Then all the elders of Israel gathered themselves together. Of course, when it talks about the elders of Israel, it's talking about the leadership, those that were uh, ruling in Israel. They, elders of Israel gathered themselves together. They came to Samuel under Ramah. And they said unto him, Behold, thou art old. Thank you. 
You know, he's probably like, okay, appreciate it. And though, by the way, there are a number of cultures in our world who actually esteem elderly. And, and in our family conference, there is a session that will touch on that slightly. Okay? It's called Use Age to Your Advantage. Use Age to Your Advantage. And you might learn a little bit about that along the way, and I'm not going to divulge any of that, but it's a topic that I, I felt was needed and it's helpful. But in many cultures today, older people are, are, are honored, they're esteemed, they're uplifted and I mean, in the Philippines, we went to the Philippines, and like we said, I mean, it was amazing to watch them. I mean, even Shirley was just amazingly uplifted there. It was just amazing. Remember how they elevated you and honored you? <clears throat> you didn't think I forgot about that, did you? But anyway, she's quick to point out they did the same for me. But anyway, I'm up here now, and she's not talking. So At least I hope not. Well, you say you should show honor to her. Give her the right to speak now. That's okay. She'll share later maybe, but not right now. But they did. They were amazing, weren't they? I mean, it was amazing over there in the Philippines. They treated, I mean, if you're older looking, because obviously I'm not that old, they, they treat you with such respect. You know what? I think we'd all agree it's not quite like that in America, is it? But that was the case. So I guess when they might have said, thou art old, maybe that wasn't such a put down in those days. Maybe it wasn't. Maybe it was like, ah, you're so wise and old. <laughs> I don't know. But anyway, then all the elders, that they gathered themselves together, came to Samuel, verse 5, and said unto him, behold, thou art old, and thy sons walk not in thy ways. What's he saying? What, what are the elders saying there? As we read through the scriptures, we realize that Samuel's sons were not devoted to God the way he was. As a matter of fact, they were very wicked. They were very wicked. So he says, Behold, thou art old, and thy sons walk not in thy ways. Now make us a king to judge us like all the nations. I'll tell you what, that, that's a problem, I think, here. <laughs> now let me give you a thought, okay? <clears throat> Here's the thought. It is important that as leaders, we do not give those who follow us reasons or justification in their minds to rebel against God. Did you, did you get that one? Okay, as I read through this the other day, I, I realized that Samuel had given the people an excuse to disobey God. Behold, thou art old, and thy sons walk not in thy ways. Now make us a king to judge us like all nations. Okay, you're old and you're prepared to pass off the scene, but your children are not in any position to rule us or to judge us. They are wicked and good for nothing. Therefore, we have to find another option. Give us a king. You, you see where this is going? So the thought is, it's important that as leaders, whether we're a parent or whether we're a, a, a pastor or we're, I don't even care if we're in charge, a CEO of a company, whatever it might be, that it's important that as leaders, we don't give those who follow us reasons or justification in their minds to rebel against God. Now, the, again, the failure of Samuel as a father and that of his wicked sons caused those people to believe they were right in demanding a king. And the present arrangement wasn't working out, apparently. 
This isn't turning out or producing what we desired or what we intended or what we expected, Samuel. This isn't going the way we thought. And therefore, as they observed this failure, they felt warranted in their demands. So no matter their reasoning, though, it was still God that they were rejecting in the end. Again, I think it's important that we remember that as leaders, we need to ensure that we produce the proper outcome or we will give others an excuse to rebel and disobey God's plan. Does that make sense? Think about abuses. You know, in the past, we, we, we really like to emphasize, years ago, we emphasized so many, you know, uh, you know, parents abusing children or them, you know, saying this or doing that or, or going overboard with discipline and all of these things. And what did it do? It gave children an excuse to disobey God by not obeying their parents. Even have teachers in school systems telling them that you don't have to obey your parents if you think they're abusing you. So what are they doing? They yelled at me. Oh, you don't have to obey them. And they may even say, well, you should obey them in that then. But they say, oh, well, you know, I don't trust them. And... Or you hear about a pastor who did something wrong and you think, well, there you go. Can't trust pastors, so who's going to obey a pastor? I'm not going to do what my pastor says because he doesn't going to turn out just like that one. And what happens is if we're not careful because of our failures not to follow the word of God or not to produce what God intends to be produced, as a leader, we have a tendency to undermine our own authority and the authority of others, and people feel justified in their rebellion. That's a scary place to be. However, may I say that in your life and in mine, no matter what abuses the leader has produced, no matter what failures leaders have, uh, have, have, have ultimately produced, you and I are still responsible to do right, no matter what. Because in this case, no matter their reasoning, and they may have been spot on because his sons were a mess, and there's no doubt that the future was grim, but to ask for a king was to reject and deny God. And so we see in 1 Samuel 8, 7, he says, And the Lord said unto Samuel, Hearken unto the voice of the people and all that they say unto thee, for they have not rejected thee, but they have rejected me, that I should not reign over them. This is not a rejection of you or even just your sons. This isn't a matter as to whether or not you or your sons deserve their loyalty. This is a reality that I am God and I'm to be ruler and head of them. They have chosen to reject me. And we say, yeah, but it's justified. Don't you understand the abuses? Don't you realize that I can't trust this leader? You better obey as God has intended and you better make sure that you're doing things God's way no matter what because in the end, that's what you'll be held accountable to. You can justify rebellion however you choose. And I can too. But in the end, <clears throat> obedience to God is still key. They rejected God because of the abuses of a man. That's, we got to be careful we don't do that too. Now, so God said to Samuel, all right, go ahead and let them have their king. God says, you let them have their king, Samuel, but I want you to do something for me now. I want you to warn them as to what kind of king they're going to have. Look at 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse 9. 
Now, again, we're kicking off this time of the kings. How did all that get going? God's dealing with his people. God has delivered them miraculously out of Egypt. God has provided them the word of God. He's he's, uh, delivered them safely into the promised land. Uh, He's given them saviors to deliver them out of the hand of their enemies whenever they found themselves in a mess. And all of a sudden, there comes a point where the prophet isn't enough because he represents God, and they just thought God isn't enough. They said, we don't want you as a prophet. We don't want your sons to rule over us. We want a king like the rest of the nations to, 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 to uh, judge us. And God says, "Now nah, they're just rejecting me. So here's what I want. You tell them they can have their king, but here's the kind of king they're going to have. Make sure you tell them. You say, why does God so bent on making sure they knew this? Wait till you see. Look what he says in 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse 9. Now therefore hearken unto their voice, howbeit yet protest solemnly unto them. This is a bad move. You're not going to like it. Don't do it. Protest solemnly. And shew them the manner of the king that shall reign over them. Verse 11. And he said, this will be the manner of the king that shall reign over you. Here it is now. He will take your sons and appoint them for himself, for his chariots and to be his horsemen. And some shall run before his chariots. And he will appoint him captains over thousands and captains over fifties and will set them to ear his ground. That means plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his instruments of war and instruments of his chariots. And he will take your daughters to be confectionaries and to be cooks and to be bakers. And he will take your fields and your vineyards and your olive yards, even the best of them, and give them to his servants. And he will take the tenth of your seed and of the vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. And he will take your men servants and your maid servants and your goodliest young men and your asses and put them to his work. He will take the tenth of your sheep and shall be and, and ye shall be his servants, and ye shall cry out in that day because of your king which ye have shall have chosen you. And the Lord will not hear you in that day. Now, now watch what's going on. You say, there are three words that stand out in this description to me. Three words that dominate the description of the king that they are now going to receive. He will take. He will take. Now, I don't know about you, but those three words do not sound like somebody that wants to serve anybody. He will take. That doesn't sound good, does it? And yet, they decided to get or have a king anyway. And the Lord says to them, I wanted to make sure you knew what you're getting into because there's coming a day when you're going to be singing the blues. You're going to be crying in your milk. You like that one? And he goes, I'll not hear you in that day. He's like, you know what? I'll give you a, well, today I'll give you a cell phone and call somebody that cares. I was going to say give you a quarter and call somebody that cares, but we don't do that anymore. Give you a cell phone and call somebody that cares because God's saying I don't at that point. Now that seems very uncharacteristic to us 
when it comes to God, doesn't it? We think, well, God gives you, God is the God of 12,000 chances. We used to say he's the God of a second chance. But then we said third chance and fourth chance and fifth, sixth, seven, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12. Just keep on going, right? And he is to some degree, very long suffering, but there is an end to his patience. And in this case, with these people, his people, Israel, he said, listen, you can go ahead and cry out all day long, but you know what? There'll be a day I'm not going to hear that. This king will take. And their response in verse 19 was just simply, nevertheless, the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, nay, but we will have a king over us that we may also, that we also may be like all the nations and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. Wow. Okay. It's funny, isn't it? They knew what was best for them. And even God himself couldn't convince them otherwise. Isn't that something? So here's the application. Isn't it sad to think about how many times we choose to walk the road of life alone because we know what's best for us? You know, again, we like to turn to the Israelites and we look at the past. And that is for our learning, by the way. Matter of fact, the Bible makes that clear. Why in the world does God record all of these situations and circumstances in the Old Testament? It's for our learning, he says. So we're supposed to learn from it, but here's the idea. We should learn from their mistakes instead of having to learn them by our own. But it's sad to think of how many times we, including myself, of course, choose to walk the road of life alone because we know what's best for us. We know what God says about a subject or a situation, but that isn't what we feel is best for us at the time, so we go it alone. I mean, although there are many examples in Scripture and others, uh, and, and other people, I should say, that we can point to in this life, the flesh wants what it wants, even to its own detriment. You know, the Bible says in Proverbs 16, 25, it says, there is a way that seemeth right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. Isn't that amazing? There's a way that seems right to me. I mean, it makes perfect sense to me. Oh, I know it doesn't align up necessarily 100% with the Bible. It's about 99.8. You know, that's what we'd like to believe when we decide to deviate. It's rarely 99.8 when we deviate, by the way. If we're that close, we've already obeyed the Lord. I'm not saying that 98.9.8 is obeying the Lord, but if you're getting that close, you probably have already made up your mind to obey fully. But the truth is, is that it's usually much less, and we somehow justify it because that's exactly how we see it. We say to ourselves, well, under my circumstances, my situation, this doesn't make sense right now. I think we should. There is a way that seemeth right unto a man. At the end thereof are the ways of death, to our own detriment, because the flesh wants what the flesh wants. Now again, you say, but we're just human, preacher. You're right, we are just human. Are we all going to fall into this trap from time to time? I would say probably. I can't speak 100% for you, but I can speak for me. Yeah. But let me say this. Does it make it right? I mean, why is it that we, we, 
I, I assume everybody's going, praise the Lord, I'm glad you bring these things up because it helps to remind us again to be careful. It, it really encourages us to keep an eye on heaven and not on the earth because we're so prone to falling and making decisions that neglect and do, do away with God in our lives. So the times of the kings begin in Israel now. And so King Saul... He's appointed. He's anointed. And for 40 years, he rules and reigns. As we noted in this particular passage above 1 Samuel, he was a ripoff. It was all about him. He wasn't about serving anyone. He wasn't about being a, a good leader. He was just simply about getting what he could. As we said, he will take. Can I tell you something? Let me just be very plain. You young ladies that are here, there's only a small group of you today, but you be real careful with a guy that only wants to take. Because in the end, you mean nothing to him no matter how many times he says he loves you. Oh, but preacher, that would never happen to me. I'm not just talking about one area that many people were thinking about. I'm talking about every area of your life. I'm talking about when it's always got to be his way for everything. When you're only allowed to talk to certain people because he's just too jealous, it's got to be his way. He only wants to take. You be real careful because you're going to have a ripoff like Saul rule in your life. And when you say, I do, you've made him your authority and you have to obey him. Well, we don't talk like that today in the culture we live in because that's not politically correct. And even church ladies don't want to hear that reality. But I'm going to tell you something. Biblically, if we want to obey God and stand before him at the judgment seat of Christ and hear well done, that is a reality. Amen. That's a biblical principle. And the problem is we don't tell our young people enough their biblical realities. And as a result, they get in a mess and they go, I wish somebody would have told me. Thinking your mom and dad didn't tell you this? What's wrong? What's broken in the home then? Because see, as I said before, it isn't a church problem most of the time. It's a home problem. Because we haven't made the word of God a priority in our own lives. Therefore, it cannot become a priority in our home. And if it's not a priority in our home, it will never be transferred to our children and the next generation. I thought of a song, a secular song, but I won't sing it right now. <laughs> you know how songs get in your head? You're walking through a mall and you hear them? I just thought of a song, you know? I really want to bust it out there, but I can't do my moonwalk. My toes are feeling it. I don't even want to put it in your head. King David! <laughs> Oh, boy, do I want to do that thing so bad. King David, 40 years. King Solomon, 40 years. I don't even know the whole song. I just know the little phrase because you hear that phrase all the time. It's probably one of those songs where you hear the same phrase 250 times. You know how those are. After the death of Solomon in B.C. 975, the kingdom was divided. So... We have Saul, of course, and this is Israel's history, and that's the history of the Jew, and we see Saul, 40 years. We see David, 40 years. Then Solomon comes, 40 years. 
Then there is a division of the kingdom. Where once Israel was all one, now we're going to find it's called Israel and Judah. So one becomes two now. Israel is the northern tribes. There's ten of them. Their central or their, their, their capital city is Samaria. Or, let's see, Syria. Syria. No, Samaria, excuse me. I'm, I'm going to get it right. I've been reading a little bit about the Syrians lately. But anyway, let me get it right here. I want to double check because my mind is going a little blank here. Samaria, that's right. I was correct. Whew. Maybe those years are adding up, aren't they, Shirley? It's evident here in my, yeah, she, yeah, thank you. Okay, so. and then there's, the, of course, the Judah. Of course, Jerusalem's their capital city. And we, of course, have Judah and Benjamin who are part of that group. So we have our Bone brothers, Rehoboam, Solomon's son, and Jeroboam, they weren't really brothers, just say that. But anyway, one has the northern tribes, Jeroboam, Rehoboam, Solomon's son, has now just simply the southern tribes, Benjamin and Judah, a split. And that's where we end with the kings. Eventually, we're going to look at the captivities. And the captivities eventually play a factor as well. And um, I don't want to just fly through all that. And so um, we've noted the kings tonight. And uh, because of time, I'm going to stop right there. I really am. Um, I could get into some other things, but once I start, it's on for the next 20 minutes, and I don't want to do that. Our nursery workers are not going to be happy with me. And I care about the nursery. <laughs> My wife's not even in there tonight. Can you believe this? It's amazing, isn't it? We talked about a little bit about the kings tonight and that portion of their history. Beginning around 975 B.C. and running on through. Man, I mean, just a lot going on there. But again, I think it's important that we understand how important we talked about those. We, we also talked about uh, the... the um, man, I'm losing my mind here. My notes are getting too... There's too many pages and they're not numbered. This is really bad. Here we go, Yeah. Yeah, we talked about the kings. And we talked about the fact that they were, that the people rejected God. And I just think that principle of leaders being or producing what God intends is important. So that we're not the excuse people use to disobey God. Dad, will you be an excuse for your children to disobey God one day? Well, my dad, he went to church, but I've seen how he lived through the week. I know the kind of shows he watched. I know the kind of stuff he looked at on the Internet. He wasn't real. Mom, what about you? All my mom ever did was scream and yell constantly. Never once seen her read her Bible. But she went to church, boy. She taught Sunday school. Boy, she was spiritual on Sundays. 
Will we be the excuse? Will we give them an excuse? I'm not saying they're right in making that decision. By the way, you, you have no responsibility other than to obey God here in this end, and that means obeying parents and all that good stuff, but in the end, you don't have a right to diss God because you disapprove of the leaders God's placed in your, your, your in, in over you. So let's be the leaders we need to be. Let's not give anyone an excuse for not obeying the Lord. I think that's a good way to leave this tonight. Father, we come to you. We ask, Lord, you just use us tonight. And again, Lord, it's a really tough thing to live up to your expectation. Sometimes we would much rather live up to the expectation of others around us. But Lord, you, you do set a high standard, but you set an obtainable standard because you've given us your Holy Spirit to literally indwell us. You've enabled us to rise above the world and to make good decisions in a world that is so backward, upside down, and ungodly. Father, may we not be the, the reason that someone disobeys you. May we not provide excuses by our, whether it be our lifestyle or, or, or the fruit that we produce in our life uh, to give them a reason to say, I'm not going to follow the Lord. I'm not going to be a church, uh, a, a church goer. I'm not going to continue in my relationship with Christ because I have not seen evidence of true faith exercised and, out, and lived out in, in the lives of those that claim to know you and love you. Father, I just pray you'd help us now, Lord. We need you. We'll give you the glory for it. In Christ's name, amen. Let's all stand, every head bowed, every eye closed. As the